Hello, welcome to A Geography of Colour. I'm Ruth Philo, I'm a painter, and this month I'm talking with painter Seaman Scammell Katz about his relationship with colour. Seaman is a contemporary British painter who's recently moved to France and he's living and working between La Souterraine and Paris. Seaman's practice is based on the understanding of the way humans see. In his mid-twenties, he launched a business that researched human behaviour and pioneered eye tracking, a technique which allowed him to understand how we see and interpret what we see. Rejecting realistic painting or photography as a false record of experiential reality, he's discarded everything representative and iconographic. Instead, he uses his knowledge of human vision to create works that draw their viewer in, allowing them to experience the fundamental feeling of the represented landscape and the sublime, often in a deeply spiritual way. His paintings are non-figurative, abstracted from place and landscape, in oil enamel on aluminium. His process aims to remove both the frame and the icon so that the viewer is asked to look without seeing, but feeling. So today I'm talking to painter Seaman Scammelcats, who now lives and works in Paris. So this is a conversation over Zoom. Hello, Seaman. It's really nice to see you today. Hey, Ruth. Hey, Ruth. Good to see you again. Yeah, we first met, I think, maybe in 2021 at an exhibition up in North Norfolk. And so our conversation has probably started there about colour, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think we talked a lot at the time about sort of the development of one's practice and how, how one sort of grew into or became uh, the, the style or type of painter that, 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 that one is. I think I remember saying, saying to you that, that I'd come at painting from a slightly unusual perspective in that I'd done a lot of commercial work in in research into how people see how humans see in the in the in the, in the world of 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 uh, marketing and so what I would been studying was our perception as humans that we have a fully you know what the the scene that's in front of us we can see all of that whereas the reality is that uh, the eye jumps over the scene and takes little bits of information and using a combination of peripheral vision and memory gives us the sensation of that we're seeing everything that's in front of us. And, and that's very much informed several things. One, one of why I don't paint figuratively in that uh, the human ability to recognise an icon is so well developed that in a, in a world um, that we currently live in that is saturated with vision imagery means that we're increasingly shortcutting. So if I, if I, I don't know, draw a church, um, the observer, the spectator is, is not going to look at the detail of my drawing of the church. They're just going to be able to say, that's a church without having, and so they can shortcut through that. You wanting to engage with the viewer, you know, for a longer time, a kind of more durational experience of looking at painting. So, so the, the, the temporal aspect to me is really important. I mean, it, there's, I like the combination between the fact that it, it takes me up to a year to, 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 to make a painting. Um, and therefore, the, and I'm, I'm painting, always painting landscape. There's a temporal relationship in the landscape itself, you know. So, so up in North Norfolk, I, was, I spent the last 20 years painting the salt marshes there. 
um, ancient landscapes, but that change every day because of the, the, the tidal flood. And can I capture some of that feeling um, and, and emotion? And I guess essentially what I'm trying to do is to try and understand through painting the relationship of, of a way of just picturing a landscape that doesn't involve figuration, but that can use surface um, uh, and, and, and texture, but particularly colour, to communicate an emotional response, a sensation of, of being in that landscape itself. Oh, that's really interesting, because you're picking up on things like weather, atmosphere, temperature, um, all those kind of sensory experiences, I suppose. Well, in, in sitting on, I'm going to carry on talking about salt marsh, you know, sitting on a salt marsh for a couple of hours, there's weather, um, there's, there's a continuously changing landscape of light in terms of sun out, sun, sun in, rainfall, wind, feeling cold, hot, the smells, and, and of course the movement of the landscape itself, people in the landscape, but also, as I say, the incoming tide or, or whatever it might be. And that's the same in any, in any landscape, and the wind blowing through the trees or, or whatever it might be. They, those, those sensations all build towards one's own personal experience of being in the landscape. But because we interpret what we're seeing using our memories, it's, it's the and, and the, the, the landscapes hold memories. So, so if you think about a, 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 I don't know, a landscape from your childhood that you went to a lot, it still looks roughly the same of the valley and the, the road that went up the valley and the farmhouse on the left hand side. But that that landscape is imbued with your own memories of what it felt like to be there as a child, as a later adult, as an adult coming back to it, and so on. So um, that's the other aspect of temporality that, that interests me in the context of, of those landscapes. Is absolutely, I think that those kind of traces that you overlay from revisiting are so interesting because they're bodily, aren't they? It's not that your thinking brain is thinking it when you go into that landscape. Or if you come across somewhere that you've been before, um, you know, you can feel it within your body. I love that sensation when I kind of recognise something. Absolutely. And, and the, the landscape, whilst it holds your memory of, of your experience of that landscape, landscape itself is a, is a memory. It's a record of what's happened to it, you know, whether it's been farmed or uh, whether the seeds come in against it or whether there's now buildings on it or or, or whatever, you know, so so. That, that it, the, the landscape was a trove of personal memory, but also a trove of, of the, 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 the landscape's memory of itself is, is, is yeah. something that, that, that's really fascinating to me. So it's like a palimpsest that it's always being rewritten and it's got traces like archaeologies, really, of previous generations or habitats or uses. Yes, yeah. and, and well-known landscapes also have a you know, vast trove of, other people's memories, but records as well. So photographs from the 1930s of a walking party through the Lake District or whatever it might be, you know. So, so in sitting down to try and capture a particular part of a landscape, those are the things that I'm trying to think about, uh, not only my own sensation of being in this landscape, but the landscape's own memory of itself um, and, and then the memories of, of the other people that have been through or enjoyed or worked or in, in that landscape as well. So can you say something about your process, how you would go about a particular painting? So uh, I, I, I paint uh, field notes in plein air and then come back into the studio. So the, the, the work that I do is all, all studio based. Um, and what I'm using my field notes for is really a, a record of 
the, the if you like the physiology of the space, uh, and, and particularly the, the the colors that I've ex experienced and seen there. Um, and I work exclusively on, on aluminium panels, and um, I build up very very thin glazes of color that allow me to record. Um, and, and each glaze is generally speaking is a total uh, glaze over the whole picture frame, over the whole pictorial frame. And these glazes build up and build up to create a slightly volumetric color record of, of the experience of being there. But because of the manual application of the glazes, as, as the glazes build over time um, and slightly slight mistakes have been made or whatever, then you get a, a landscape, weirdly, that, that, of, of, that, that appears of the paint itself which then as part of the process of developing the, the picture over time, you start to respond to those little gradations of texture and so on that, that change across the picture, picture panel itself. So you're responding to your painting while you're painting as well as to the memory of the landscape. Exactly that, yeah. Um, and, and paint, are you using oils? Then if sorry, yes, it's all oils mixed with, with usually with, with terps and probably poppy seed. Um, and I have a whole library of of formulas, if you like. So it's the alchemy of, you know, creating little glazes that um, go into, which will have a record of, you know, what, what are the original paints that have gone in there mixed with terps and the date that they were made. Because one of the nice things about these glazes is that um, part of their imperfection is how they age. So something that was made three years ago will go on and apply in a slightly different way to a fresh glaze. And that's part of that conversation with the paint um, as, 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 as you're applying it. Are there any particular paint manufacturers that you use or colours that uh, are vital to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a massively wide selection of, of, of source colours. Um, I tend to use Michael Harding paints, a bit of Sennelier um, for particular colours. So, so there's, a, there's a really beautiful colour called um, Modigliani Ochre that Sennelier make uh, that I particularly like. But what I find with Michael Harding is, generally speaking, as, as a source paint to, to, to create thin glazes from, is that the granularity of the, um, the, the grind that they've done is, is, is so fine that it, that it, that it works, it holds, it holds itself together um, in, in, those, in, 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 the, in, the, in the glaze mix. And do you work in series or...? Yeah, so at the moment I'm, I'm working on a series of paintings in response to Giovanni. I went to Giovanni uh, last uh, year ago and um, this whole idea that we're talking about, about the idea of uh, memory and landscape and landscape holding memories, we all know how important that particular landscape was to, to Monet. I was interested to think about, well, what would, what would his memory bank, if you like, be of the images of being at Giovanni? And, and could I sit down and paint Monet's memories of landscape? Um, and I'll tend to work on, I don't know, some, something like five to ten picture panels as part of, of, of a series of pieces of work. Um, and, and that's, that's exactly what's, what, what, I'm, what I'm doing at the, at the moment. Um, what kind of scale are these paintings? Um, minimum um, 60 by 60 uh, centimetres, but, but I, my preference is, is 120 by 120. Um, and normally I prefer square to either landscape or portrait, simply because the, 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 that doesn't 
immediately hold the reference to what it's referring to the very fact we call them portrait and landscape shapes and that and equally that's why i'm working partly why i'm working on aluminium is that, that it doesn't have so much of the language of the canvas the stretcher the painting and so on and so by being on a different to, to be a different carrier i.e aluminium um it, it it does it has a different suggestion as to what you might be looking at yeah i, I read on your website that you said you aim to remove the frame and the icon for the viewer. So I suppose by uh, using the square, you're making it, you, it the reference uh, isn't so obvious. Yeah. And the, by the frame, I, I mean very much that the, part of the problem with landscape painting, particularly when it interfaced with photography, was was that the kind of uh, compositional structures for landscape that came from Poussin and, and, and Lorraine and so on have been so overused because they now form the construction for art direction and film and television and so forth is that, that it's that, that again they, they they become icons in, the, in the, the very themselves is that the the good view of the valley with the trees framed by the trees on either side with the thing in the distance you know all that sort of foreground midground and and, and, and distance you know, all, all those things become uh, a, a, a language that allows us to lazily look at a picture, if you like. And that's, again, why I've removed those, those kind of references, generally speaking, from the picture. Yes, it makes too many shortcuts, maybe, doesn't it? Totally that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm wondering how it is to be sitting in Monet's landscape, though. Um, what kind of interference do you get while you're painting yourself? You know, do you have lots of kind of Monet's flashing through your mind? <laughs> it's What I've found is it's been almost beyond overwhelming because so much of the nymphias, for example, are they're so tea towel and chocolate box and mug and T-shirt and everywhere, 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 is that it's it's almost overwhelming, but also extremely interesting to actually just live in the palette that he worked with um, and live in his representation of those colours of the dawn on the Seine, uh, in 1876, you know, and how he uh, thought about light in that context, um, and 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 therefore the palettes that, that he worked with. So um, I think that's that's almost ridiculously arrogant to to take a great painter like Monet on, as it were. Um, but but at the same time, as a as a way of learning more about painting and about color. You know, to, to sit in his landscape um, that he moulded and designed and created and painted and painted and painted. It's, it's been an incredibly big learning experience. Yeah, I imagine very rich. I mean, I came across to Paris earlier in the year to see the um, Mitchell Monet exhibition. So I think I'm sure you've been to that probably a few times. Several times, yeah. Again, I thought that relationship between Mitchell and Monet and the way they looked at the landscape was an interesting one to explore. I mean, it's, it almost seemed to me like he, she bought her house uh, up there looking over the, over the Seine almost to replicate what he'd done um, at Vertaille and then at Giverny as, as, as a sort of a, a lifestyle homage to, to Monet. And, and it was... Mitchell's relationship to capturing landscapes was different to his in that it wasn't representing specifically necessarily one landscape, whereas she worked much more from, from her memory. Um, I thought, I don't know what your response was, but I thought it was really amazing 
the relationship between those two painters and seeing their work alongside each other, even Absolutely. again to the sort of the, the palette matches, if you saw, you know, the, between the, the two of them. And the brushstroke. I mean, there were some that were very gestural and yes, uh, you wouldn't have thought that you'd find two um, that had such connection that you could put side by side. So but, I particularly was, Mitchell, because the, the sort of the violence of her stroke, the violence of her gesture, um, is, is quite different to, to his, but, you know, to, towards the end of his life, the marks that he was making and, and, and the, the, the hints and movement towards abstraction that, that, that he was going towards, which then, of course, you know, 30, 40 years later, she, she's picking up and she's working with and, and, and so on. It, it was a really, really standout show, although, it has to be said, as always, uh, populated by 14,000 other people standing in front of the pictures you're trying to look at. <laughs> yes, I suppose you do have to put up with that. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about your painting and, um, you know, working in series and you've reduced it to, a, you know, to a square in that, you know, you've reduced those references. Well, it seems that what you're do wanting to do is get the viewer to go beyond simply looking. And I know you mentioned on your website more about a sensory experience of feeling. I wondered how colour fitted into this because it's such a big vehicle in your paint box, really. Well, I mean, if you take out composition and, and you take out narrative uh, and form um, and iconography, uh, uh, what you're really left with is colour. And, you know, the psychology of colour and the conscious and unconscious meanings that, that those colours convey specific specifically within the context of you know some somebody looking at, at a painting um in a gallery situation no, no matter how sophisticated they are in the history of art they bring their pre-knowledge of expectations about what the meanings of these colors are the the complexity of that dialogue of of just having color pretty much color to create the sensation of experience um it means you're leaning very very heavily on on color and its meaning to communicate a presence to, 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 to the spectator, to the viewer. Everyone will have their own references, really, sort of like a map of what colours mean to them. And, you know, um, perceptually, we're not sure exactly that everyone sees the same colour. We all have our own colour experiences to a certain extent. But so the that... memories that those, those colours are linked to, even if I see... Oh, it's very basic, but if, if I if I see the red of a Coke can differently to the next person, I'm still seeing it in relation to the Coke can. So there's the Coke can and the, all the meanings that that thing has, whether the colour's perception is, is different, its its inherent meaning um, remains the same. And, and, and I think, so, so one's a life experience, whether I'm seeing red as green and green as red, it's always in relation or not, almost exclusively in relationship to a... Uh, a, a psychological meaning um and so so that that's that's uh, for me i think that's how that works we can at least have a broadly collective agreement about what that that particular color gesture means so i can see some blue paintings behind you did you want to say maybe something about how you're using blues there i have this ongoing battle with blue because i it seems to appear so much in the work that i do the warmth and, 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 and coldness of, of, of the blue. I tend to work with either ultramarine or Prussian blue, pretty much those exclusively, because they communicate uh, so many experiences 
in one sense, there's a lot around calmness and and restfulness. In other senses, there's also distance in the sense of sky and and so on. Um, and 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 depending on how you use those the, those those colours, whether I'm looking down into a blue, whether I'm looking up at a blue, you, you know, the, those sensations carry their own meanings as as well. Applying that across the the, the spectrum. You know things like you know, the color green, for example, uh, because of course that then starts to. So there's blue in there. Okay, so so what is the blue in the green meaning? What is the yellow in the green meaning? How do those two things start to pull apart from each other? Does the green have a meaning on its own? Often it does, but more blue will then uh, create another meaning to that green, and I, that's the kind of conversation that uh, that that one is continuously having in the in the in the mixing of the glazes um, and in the relationship from transparent glaze to transparent glaze because that particular blue added to the blues that are already there several glazes before will start to pull out the strength of, of, of one or, or, or another and have a meaning in terms of relationship to space as well. I think that layering is very interesting. You're almost having to think like a printmaker, the, uh, you know, the order of the colours and um, how they will affect each other in the final reckoning I suppose as I work through a painting I keep a record of each of the glazes that I put on um, so that not only have I got an idea of the direction that this thing's going to go to but if I want to change direction obviously often we want to do that as we're working through a, 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 a painting or perhaps I should say fighting with a painting um, uh, is, is uh, what, what is it that I've already done and what I want my intention is that 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 I can make a relationship between the, those things. So it's it's a a living relationship as 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 the painting progresses because of what you've already done in the transparent glazes that have come come before it. It's another palimpsest like the landscape that we were talking about earlier, I suppose. Yeah. And do you sand down, or do you get you know do you put white spirit or something on to remove layers, or is it always a process of building? Um, no, it's it's very often very most commonly it's it's uh, glaze, dry, sand. Um, um, but the, but then the question is is that going to be with an eight hundred grain um, sandpaper or with a one twenty? Um, how much of that glaze do I want to take off? And um, sometimes when I putting put a glaze on and I've gone in the wrong direction, how much of that do I want to take off straight away? So you know, do I? with my white spirits take off that with a rag because what are the, what are the remnants that that's going to leave behind or do I, do I want to use a sponge and so on so each glaze moment as it were so without sounding too pretentious has its application point um how's it going on as it goes on so the point i made earlier on about glazes older glazes behaving in particular ways um sometimes i can start putting on a glaze and realize that this is just not going to work so then taking it off with the white spirit is still going to leave traces. And therefore, um, how am I going to be able to work around that, that, that um, historical reference, if you like? And then when I sand back, how much do I want to take of this top glaze off in relation to the glazes that are already there? And sometimes that can be quite violent. It can be a really heavy sanding so that you're leaving very little of that previous. And maybe, maybe we might be taking two glazes off before you then start to work back up and build back up the glazes that are underneath. The beauty of what then creates the surface, because, because you've got this now uneven series of glazes and so on, that's when it starts, starts to come towards the end of the painting that you actually start working less from the memory of the landscape you started with and more with the actual object of the painting itself. 
And I was thinking about the paintings themselves, that when you look at them, um, to me, I can see, kind of see analogies to um, music, maybe, or poetry, and um, ideas of feeling or mood. I don't know what, what, what you would think about that. I totally agree. Um, it, it is very much poetry. Or, I, I, I uh, live with a, a writer, um, and uh, her frustration is language in, in that the things that we can do as painters in terms of abstracting away from uh, a source image, and yet people still have some kind of comprehension or understanding of it. it we, we've got so much further that we're allowed to go compared to language with once, you know, go beyond Joyce and then it becomes gobbledygook and nobody can understand anything anymore. Um, but poetry obviously is, is an interface between prose and, and what we do. Um, and music is also in that space as well. And I, and I very much hope that that, that is a, that's a landscape that we're, that I'm inhabiting. That's the, 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 the spiritual journey that that sounded again too pretentious, um, the, the spiritual experience of, of, of looking at the, the painting because perhaps by removing so much of the things that we expect, like composition and, and so on, um, that, that, that that interaction becomes um, a, a more numinous uh, relationship with, 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 the, with, with the panel of paint that therefore has uh, a presence in itself other than just being colour. And so I was, it's kind of leading me to think about the sublime. And I know that other writers have written about your work with regard to that. What do you think about that? There's so many different interpretations of what the sublime mean, but what the, I guess the interpretation that most interests me is the sort of the German Romantic nineteenth-century idea of the sublime as as a as as a an unvoiceable representation of God, and in a world, certainly my world, that there is no God, but but the, the and and that actually the the awe in that nineteenth-century meaning is actually created by us, you know, the the, the nuclear bomb. The, the the climate change and, and so on so the 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 awe of beauty and terror uh that 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 is the sublime that i that really is right at the core of what i'm trying to record when i'm when i'm making a painting um and and part of the we've talked a lot about the sort of the the memory the landscape's own memory of itself so often that is a scoring by 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 humanity and and you know the world that, that is we're currently in and the future for our children of, of change dramatic change you know so there's, um, there's a sense not only of the memory of the, the the scoring of landscape but also what that landscape might disappear from from and so making landscape paintings to me today is so important because it's a record that of of landscapes that are not going to be there in 50 years time yes it's kind of taking us to the edge and that is kind of very critical you know that it, uh, the beauty is there, but not in a sweet way. And, you know, the the terror is there, it, but probably we're trying not to look at it. I don't know, but you can still feel them, can't you? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Th that's that's trying to package up an awful lot of ambition into 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 one one or a series of, of, of pictures. But that is one of the wonders of what colour can do, I think, I believe. Um, in in trying to approach some of those uh, portentous um, problems. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and with your paintings, do you? I don't think you frame them ever, do you? But I'm just no. checking. No. no, 
I, I, I like the idea because with, with thin aluminium, what I like about that is, and I, I put the, uh, on, a, on a box frame behind them so they float on the wall. The relationship to the edge is really, really interesting um, because if you don't have a narrative composition, there's not an area, one area of the painting that's more important than anywhere else. So the bit that's right over in the corner is just as important as the bit in the centre. And so by not framing, it encourages the, the pitch to float off the edge. I always talk, talk about, you know, I like the idea that, that the pitch can fly off the edge and, and in a sense continue beyond the, the, the space that that painting actually is. Yes, I agree. And also you don't have this idea of it being a window, a window on yeah. the wall. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you know, the, the more ornate the frame is, you know, what am I looking at here? The, the frame or, or the picture? Um, and funnily enough, one of the things that um, I was reading about the Monet Mitchell show, um, I was talking to actually one of the curators there, um, and they were saying that a lot of the Monets were, present, were taken out of the frames so that they could sit with the Mitchells, which were unframed as well. And yeah. suddenly you saw a very, very different painting because yeah. it wasn't surrounded by a 19th century ornate gilt frame, uh, which was fighting with the painting itself. You saw the painting as Monet painted it on, the, on, on, on his easel, which I thought was an amazing idea. Yes, it kind of decontextualizes it in a way, doesn't it? Totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. What has moving to Paris done for your painting, do you think? The fundamental thing is that, that, that I've only ever lived in, 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 in England. My relationship to, to landscape and even when I've been other places around the world has always been so much held in working in a studio in England. To, to go to somewhere that's unfamiliar, not only um, as a physical location, but in language and in culture, means that... that you can ask some biggish questions of yourself, particularly, I mean, I'm in my mid fifties. You're asking some big questions about yourself generally anyway. Uh, you know, can you survive in this place where you're learning the language, not being able to read the, the social codes and, and, and so ways in the way that a, a, a native would. Um, it means that life in the studio is, is, is much more precarious because life is more precarious. And I think that's a really big and important thing to do at, at you know, this point in middle age to, 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 to <laughs> frighten oneself uh, and remove a, a lot of a lot of the, the the things you've been sitting on for so much of your life and and question it question what you're doing um so it's it's done many many things but 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 specifically in terms of painting it means that you almost have to start again you know all these theories that you developed sitting in a studio in norfolk or wherever it might have been now mean something different sitting somewhere else and and do they still stand up i suppose yeah, that's fascinating. It's quite, it seems, sounds very brave, actually, but also could have a huge impact on your work. You know, it's a, a bit like the sublime, a bit of the voyage into the unknown, isn't it? Well, it, yeah, and it's lonely. You know, it's it's, it's a lonely existence. because uh, And so slowly building up, having people call in at the studio and, and look at what you're doing and, and that, that kind of dynamic feedback that is so, because we are, generally speaking, so lonely uh, in, in making our work. Um, and, and so I had a guy here yesterday, he's, he's a, um, uh, an editor of a, of a big French magazine. His perspective take was, was just culturally different. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, challenging and exciting at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Going back uh, into this idea of colour as memory, I wondered if you, if you could say a bit more about that, maybe in terms of your memory or, you know, colour in your lungs. 
so so I think you know which kind of relates to what we've just been talking about really which is you know my I, I lived in English countryside up until now my whole life um and so the the palette that I've that I've worked with since my my 20s is is an English palette um and I I traveled abroad with it if you sort of mean you know I I do um work in Greece for example um and adapt my English palette to to, to that and I think it's it's I I I'm finding that it's I can't really leave that that palette that's that's established in my head partly because the whole technical involvement with I don't know uh alizarin crimson that I've been using for years and how it works and and how how it technically behaves and and so on is a limitation in a sense um in in and and okay whilst I, there are now three or four more paints in in the, the my box of paints here um one does see color through through the, the the fog of the memory that one has mine is an english palette and so looking at extremes of color in the mediterranean for example i i'm still i guess seeing it through my my by, through the through the gate through the gauze of of an english palette um and so I think that's what one often sees that I mean, Peter Doig springs to mind um, mm. in that he sort of spent childhood between Scotland and Trinidad and Canada. And, and, and when he's painting, it feels to me that like, is that the Le Prairie's Road um, in, in Trinidad where, where we, when he's painting that, it, I, I wonder if it's a truly Trinidadian palette or whether the filter of Canada and, and, and Englishness, those palettes, uh, the coldness of those two two, two locations um, infuse into him painting in Trinidad. You know, and I, I think that's that's a really interesting, possibly impossible to to pull away from um, impact of uh, uh, having a, a memory bank of colour to start with. Absolutely, it's a very interesting idea that that we might have these colours within us. I mean, we're choosing like clothes, we're decorating our houses. And we're looking at things all the time. So we must kind of have this encyclopedia of colour inside us that's all sure. quite personal. Yeah, I mean, it, but also, uh, you know, the, in the semiotics of the culture, you know, if I say to you, there's a there's a girl wearing a red skirt, there's a whole load of meanings that, that you immediately say about that, probably what who that girl is almost like, what their, what their personality is. A lot of girls wouldn't wear a red skirt like that. You know, so, so you know, that's a slightly extreme example, but, you know, that we do have absolutely um, held into our memories judgments and and um, perceptions of meanings of, of, of colours. And but of course, they culturally change. So red to, to, to a European is, has different, very, very different to red, what red means in China, particularly yeah. um, Eastern China. I was wondering if there are any painters that you kind of looked to or have looked to in the past particularly in relationship to colour? Uh, if I, I could probably be, and say Turner taught me pretty much um, most of, of what I know about colour and technical technical application of colour. Monet also extraordinarily important um, for the same sorts of reasons. Um, and in, in simply their lifetime of moving of uh, moving through the technical application of paint and the use of color um and, and the direction in later style particularly late life that they both went in in hinting towards what was to come in the 20th century they've they've been two pivots for me um in 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 thinking about color and and, and so on people like bridget riley who who are 
looking at color and relationship of colors in, in, in very, very different ways um, that, that are, you know, equally as challenging. And yet they've all got something in common in that they're all kind of looking optically and it's the importance of light on the colour as well, isn't it? And the effects yes. of light. Yes, yes. Well, I think Monet's questioning of, of can I capture light is, is essentially, and, and for a lot of us, I think that's that's exactly the same thing. You know, I mean, obviously without light, we wouldn't see anything. So, you know, the, the, the refraction of reflection of, of light on surface which not only is the thing we're looking at, we're trying to represent it, but also is what the painting itself is and the science of that, an intrinsic part of, of what I think we, we are thinking about as painters. Yes, and it's kind of that pinning down an atmosphere, isn't it? In a, in Absolutely. A yeah. So tell us a bit about what you've got coming up this year. So um, I've got a small show um, in Belleville um, in, in Paris um which was, is really the first opportunity to put, put the the Giovanni series um out and then later on I've got a show with my gallery here which is more of a range over work that I've done over the last two or three years looking at specifically really concentrating um in the conversations we've had so far anyway that may well change by the time we get there concentrating in responses to different landscapes in different countries and, and how my practice responds to those those different things. Yes, the kind of location and place is kind of primary, really, isn't it, in your work? Absolutely, yes. Fun, fundamental to the, the whole point of me picking up a brush and working on a particular piece of work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I hope those go well. Um, Thank you. It's been really interesting to talk to you about colour. And, um, I mean, it would be lovely to see more of your paintings. Will, are you having any shows coming up in the UK anytime soon? I'm hoping for spring next year but um, in London, but um, that's that's very much in an early part of the conversation right now. Um, so um, that, that I hope comes off. Yeah, cool. Oh, thanks very much, Seaman. It's been really great to talk with you. And with you, Ruth. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks to Seaman for such a fascinating insight into his relationship to colour. I'd also like to thank Stuart Bowditch for editing the podcast, Arts Council England for supporting it through a Develop Your Creative Practice grant, and Contemporary British Painting, an artist-led organisation that I'm a member of, for helping to publicise it. Thank you for listening. A Geography of Colour is a monthly podcast with a new painter each month talking about their relationship with colour. Do follow it in your podcast player and share it with your friends. You can follow A Geography of Colour and Seaman Scammel Cats on Instagram and Contemporary British Painting at Paint Britain. If you have a look in the notes to the podcast, you'll also find links to websites.